time now for Connecting the Diocese. Connecting the Diocese is a production of the Diocese of La Crosse. Here's host Jack Silsha. Thank you for tuning in, Connecting the Diocese. Before we get down to the business of the day, a belated congratulations going out to the Holman High School Marching Band, the Marching Vikings, at the ReliaQuest Bowl Festival Parade Competition in Florida. They earned a silver rating in concert band, second place in a field show competition, and swept all categories in the parade competition. Despite the cold weather, they had a rollicking big reception when they came back on the bus with people lighting the streets of Holman, Wisconsin. As a guy who has some difficulty walking and chewing gum at the same time, the idea of being able to march and play an instrument just astounds me. Actually, it astounds me that anyone can play an instrument, because I can't. Saxophone, piano, trumpet, just not what I can do. But boy, these folks sure can. Some of you may have noticed over the past month or two that I have not been yapping at you about COVID-19. Well, be prepared for a minute or so to be yapped at. There seems to be a new variant out there. I believe it's like BA-15, and it does come from overseas, and it has reached our shores, which, although it is not any more virulent as far as the um, things it can do to you, is still no walk in the park. It can make you really, really sick. But it is also much, much more contagious than the previous versions. This virus is very smart. It wants to survive. And it does so by finding new ways to get around the defenses. It's kind of like the survival of the fittest. The virus keeps spewing out variants of itself, seeing which ones can get through. And some of them don't, and they die, and they don't care because there's more where they came from. And what's happening is they finally find one that is getting around the vaccines, that is kind of sneaking sneaking in the back door, and that's the one that spreads, and that is the one that is currently spreading. There's also a lot of research going on and a lot of concern about so-called long COVID, that once you get the virus in you, it goes to places they hadn't expected it to go. They're also finding out that there are a number of children who find themselves at least temporarily, if not longer, incapacitated physically because they've got the virus in them that's doing something to them, and they're not quite sure what it is. There are also some indications that the virus remains on hard surfaces a lot longer than they thought. This information is not being headlined in major media because they know you're bored with it and they want you to keep looking at what they have to show you. They want to get those clicks. You can do some checking on your own, but please do me a favor. Keep up your washing routine. Stay away from unnecessary crowds, especially if you're a little older, and maybe even wear a mask. Try to get through safe and sound till spring and we can open some windows and maybe relax a bit more. But right now, stay vigilant. Just a little snippet I found online of the the Holman High School marching band performing in Florida. I would like to have heard more, but that was all that was there, about 26 seconds. However, darn nice to hear it. What I should be playing to introduce Father James Krasinski and what we're going to be talking about for a good portion of the hour is something like this.
That's right. We're going to be talking about time in a lot of different ways. And uh, for those of you who are 80s types, uh, that was the Bangles, of course. And then for those of you a bit older, now the time has come by the Chambers Brothers. So let's get right to it because time's a wasting. Well, I want to welcome back to the show Father James Krasinski. And uh, Father, you are, for people who don't know, where are you located? I'm the pastor of St. Olaf Parish in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And you have been there for how long now? I'm starting my fifth year, which actually I'm very happy about. I've, for me, the, the longest assignment I've had in my priesthood was my seven years at Regis. You know, as of right now, I'm very happy to be looking at a long-term assignment here in Eau Claire. And I just absolutely love it being that, you know, I spent seven years teaching at Regis High School. Coming back to Eau Claire to St. Olaf was, really did feel like a homecoming. And uh, the city does feel very much like home. I got some of my closest friends outside of the priesthood here from my time teaching high school. So it's, it's a beautiful area. Love what I do. What did you teach in high school? I taught a lot of different things. When I started at Regis, I taught uh, religion courses, obviously. I would teach freshman sacraments, taught uh, sophomore scripture. In time, we had some uh, position changes at Regis, and they really needed me to transition into teaching morality. And at first, I was very scared about that, not because of the subject matter, but I thought, Oh man, a, a priest telling a bunch of of high school kids about morality. I mean, that would be like their worst nightmare come true. But ironically, afterward, that was my favorite class to teach at Regis. It was, uh, and I think that part of it was, is one, it was the junior religion class. And so the kids are getting to that point where they can start to abstract think and, you know, their their thinking is deepening a little bit. But also, too, that, you know, as is often the case, we can fall into the trap, as I did, of reducing Catholic morality to, to sins and to, you know, what we do wrong. But really, the beautiful thing with the catechism is the very beginning of the purpose of the moral life is happiness. And yeah. to what does it mean to live a happy life? And that very much, when we, did, when we did that approach and just took it there, it really intrigued the students and it opened up some spectacular times of conversation. Towards the end of my time at Regis, being that they needed uh, some more science offerings, uh, the principal at that time, uh, Bill Allman, called me in and asked if I'd be willing to teach an astronomy course because he knew I had a, a passion for astronomy. So in my last year at Regis, I, I taught an introduction to astronomy course, uh, which was a load of fun. And... Yeah, the kids had no idea what to expect about a, a, a priest teaching astronomy. I got a bunch of parents with angry phone calls of, what is it that you're teaching astrology to our kids? I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. I'm not teaching kids how to read tarot cards. Um, I'm teaching them why stars explode and how planets form and the science of the stars. I'm not getting into the weird spirituality stuff. So, yeah, it, it, somebody, um, somebody misheard. <laughs> was just and it's, ama you know, it's I, amazing of all the academic fields out there i have never uh, astronomy for whatever i don't know why but everybody always presumes it's astrology and it's nope, a common it's, thing because both involve yeah. stars uh, and one yeah. is scientific mm -hmm. and one is bogus but you know, <laughs> the way it yeah. is, you know it's interesting that uh, we have you know, catholic schools week going on all these things that we talk about but uh, just you mentioning the courses that are offered in a Catholic school uh, mm -hmm. to young people is so important. I, I'll 
deviate here from our conversation a little bit. I was looking at uh, oh some article in one of the national newspapers online on uh, the, the problem of artificial intelligence and mm-hmm. uh, and some students really having the, uh, the the program write a paper for them. And uh, this one guy said uh, he was a professor at a university teaching religions of the world, and it was very obvious that this young young person had some program generate this this essay for him, mm-hmm. and the kid admitted it. And uh, in the comments that were going on afterwards, I was looking at all this stuff, and one person just writes, well, you know, if you were teaching Shakespeare, that'd be one thing, but you're just teaching comic books. This guy's teaching the religion of the worlds. And, oh, and I, I had majored in comparative religion in college as well. And I was sitting there going, you are one ignorant person that somewhere along the line, something did not inspire you or interest you or even attract you in any way, shape or form that you would refer to the religions of the world, the faith life of people over thousands of years and millions of people all over the world. And you refer to that study as comic books. That's not a happy person. Yeah. You know, the whole artificial intelligence movement, I do try to to read uh, up on it as much as I can. I don't have a ton of time to dedicate to it because it is a, it's becoming the new buzzword. You know, in, you find that, you know, before we uh, went live, we were talking about cameras and I do photography for a hobby, and right now the new industry buzzword is artificial inte- intelligence-based autofocus. And you know, and sometimes people have to step back and ask, what does that really mean? I mean, I I was looking at an artificial intelligence uh, art software program that uh, you could like type in different kinds of words and it would create a picture on your screen based just on what you typed. Well, it became very evident to me that it really wasn't artificial intelligence, but what it it was was an individual who did an incredible amount of work to program this art creator with all these different historic images of different types of renderings. And if you would type into this Jesus calming the waters in the boat, you would get this very beautiful pastoral image of Jesus standing in a boat. But then if you would just take Jesus out and put in something like a man stood in a boat and calmed the waters, it was completely different. (laughs) And to me, it showed that, you know, obviously right now with a lot of artificial intelligence, how much of it is really quote unquote intelligence and how much of it is just very neat, creative programming that kind of creates a, you know, it's kind of like a, a cookbook that has all these ingredients on a shelf programmed into its memory. You put in the recipe and it just kind of gloms it all together. Um, that being said, though, I do think that there are some interesting and scary things developing in artificial intelligence that we as a church need to be aware of. But right now, I think that right now that just because it's there's such a cultural buzz around artificial intelligence, you first have to identify, well, what are you actually talking about with yeah. this? But anyway. Yeah, I look at a, a forum that has people from around the world displaying portraits they have taken. 
and every once in a while someone slips in one that was not made by a camera but just they said you know take a picture of a guy with a make a picture of a guy with you know dark hair sunglasses and a, and a t-shirt and you know it will generate this picture that looks pretty good again based on millions of other photos it has seen yeah and the one thing apparently they cannot do well is uh, the AI cannot do hands real well. And one of the giveaways is if you see someone, the, the great-looking picture, but it looks like they're holding spaghetti in their fists, you know it's an artificial <laughs> intelligence photo. And uh, so yeah. it, it's an interesting time. We are our tech people, and this is all stuff that uh, hopefully will become uh, so transparent that we'll be able to use it without fussing with it. But at the same time, um, mm-hmm. you know, essays written by computers, photos taken by computers, videos done by computers, entire scripts done by computers. Uh, as a person who has done a little bit of writing, non nonfiction, how to stuff, uh, boy, I'll tell you, it, it, it's you know, someday you're going to have the homilymatic AI program. And it is not the same as a priest standing up there speaking from his heart. I was just talking with a teacher the other day that not necessarily about artificial intelligence, but just about technology in general, that the more that kids are growing up with technology, like they're, like I would say, smart devices and Chromebooks and all that kind of stuff. And they're just... It, they're so, it's not even, even to say they're immersed is kind of a insufficient way to explain it, but just that's part of their, their upbringing that they, some of the teachers in kindergarten, first grade have to teach them how to think creatively because they didn't have the situation of whatever I did or you did as a kid where you had a sandbox and you had like three toys and you created in your mind this narrative of the story of what's going on with these toys and you didn't have the creative problem solving of wasn't always able to go to the movies so you and your siblings would you know create your own movie in the living room and you know kind of use the couch as a stage or whatever and get yelled at at your parents because you were going to be breaking the springs and all that kind of stuff there's something dangerous about if we lose the sense of the imagination if we lose our sense of creativity, we also lose our sense of wonder, which not just in terms of faith creates an issue, but just being a member of the human race, you know, not being able to dream about something beyond who we are in any, whether it's work or sports or religion or whatever it is, it's a very dangerous thing we have to keep in balance. Yeah, you don't want you don't want people to become an extension of the machines they're using. And that ironically we were talking I just got back from Dallas, Texas and I was part of uh Word on Fire's um first faith and science conference called Wonder. I went to an artificial intelligence presentation by a Dominican and he said that was precisely the problem that we need to look at. To first of all, not be afraid of artificial intelligence and all the developments there. It's not, you know, it's not all bad. There's a lot of good to it. And he explained that. I'm actually going to be doing some articles on this for the for Sacred Space Astronomy, the Vatican Observatory blog. But then he said, too, we have to make sure that we never put ourselves in a position where we are serving artificial intelligence. But that artificial intelligence is something that can improve the human condition 
that can assist us and not put ourselves in a position where we become so codependent on this stuff that we can't function as a people anymore. And that then becomes a form of idolatry. Yeah. It becomes a, a form of worshiping a false god that maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, when our life revolves around this and we can't function without it, that's very dangerous for us. Yeah. So, yeah. One of our youth ministers was on a little while ago, and they were saying that when they went to some, you know, out camping with the kids kind of thing, uh, they had a, you know, a list of the activities going on, and then there were a couple of things where there was an hour of, of free time. And sometimes mm-hmm. the, the young people would say, what am I supposed to do? Yep. You know, that's, it's, it's very strange. It's very I rem- strange. When, I, when I first started teaching at Regis High School, and, and this isn't a statement about Regis, because every high school, private and public, are going through the exact same problem. When I first started at teach, teaching at Regis, cell phones were banned. You could not have cell phones in the class. You couldn't have, you know, all that kind of stuff. Kids would, like, try to sneak them in. Now it's almost presumed, now on the other side, that maybe they try to have the kids keep their cell phones in the locker. But they're using technology all day now to communicate with parents, to scheduling appointments, and all that other kind of stuff. And it's hard because are there good things to that? Absolutely. and Because I'm not... I would, if I was a parent, I would love to have the opportunity to be able to just quick check in with my kid to see how they're doing. There's also a danger in that too of, you know, when you get into the whole helicopter mentality that, you know, part of growing up is having, you know, that sense of discovery. And if you're constantly being stimulated in all these different directions by external technology and that kind of, do you ever have a chance to really look inside of yourself? <laughs> do you ever have a sense to, instead of playing a video game and responding to a text and sending a text and all that kind of stuff, do you ever have time just to quiet your heart and to wonder what's happening in me? Yeah, but, we've been uh, trying to schedule some guests ahead of time. And uh, one um, next week, I, God willing, as the bishop says, I'm going to be having a uh, a sister on from the FSPA talking about simplifying your life, decluttering your life, and all mm-hmm. kinds of things, which is based on a uh, uh, some massive amount of furniture moving and things that were done in our house based on our our main um, range breaking, <laughs> which we'll get yeah. we, a story for next week, folks. That you'll have to just wait for that one. But uh, you know, the other thing that I was I'm very interested in was there have been several things that happened over the past couple of weeks that got me thinking about how we perceive time. Um, mm-hmm. One was that, uh, and you can explain what this is, there is a so-called green comet, which will be plainly visible to some people uh, in our area pretty soon, that well, if you miss it, <laughs> if it's overcast or whatever happens, I, you'll have to wait 50,000 years before it yeah. comes back. Now, boy, mm-hmm. I, I thought I was slow, but uh, <laughs> uh, where is this comet? What is it called? Why is it green? And why does it take 50,000 years to come back? Yeah, well, first of all, there's still a chance to see it. If our current weather patterns hold up, good luck, because, you know, there's certain days in Wisconsin where people I wouldn't doubt people to think that the sun doesn't exist anymore with as cloudy as it's been. So obviously with uh, as cloudy as it can get. But on February 1st, uh, 
this comet that doesn't have a cool name like the last comet did of Comet Neowise. It's a, a pre pretty scientific name. Um, I'll just call it up here really quick so we can get the very inspiring uh, name of, of this comet. It, and, because it only comes around once every 50,000 years, it doesn't really deserve a popular name because no one would remember yeah. it, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Anything you wrote um, down the name on would be gone 50,000 years later. This yeah, is the problem. The, the, the easiest way to refer to it is Comet ZTF. <laughs> and that's, but it's the, the actual name is Comet C slash 2202E3. Uh, Very inspiring yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it'll be closest to the Earth on February 1st. Hmm. And it will be visible to the Northern Hemisphere. And, but the, it's not going to be like Comet Neowise, where it was, Comet Neowise was a once in a lifetime, you know, comet in terms of being able to be seen the, so easily in the night sky. You're going to need some decent binoculars or a small telescope um, to see this one. And whether it's like astronomy.com or, um, or there's a lot of different places that can give you the precise coordinates. I'll be, if the skies clear up, I'll be setting up and trying to get some pictures of it. Please. But yeah, 50,000 years, that's a hard concept it's to long, think of. It's a, long, it's a long milk run, I'll tell you. Uh, why is it green? Green, a lot of the reason why we have comets different colors is that the different elements of comets um, that when they burn off, when they get close to the sun and they start burning off and they form their tail, every chemical has a color signature to it. And so therefore, um, comets are usually made up of pretty similar stuff. Um, there's usually some rock material, some metal materials, uh, some what's called heavy water. There's a, and it's take a long time to explain, but heavy water and the water we have on earth are two different kinds of water, uh, scientifically speaking. So it's not the kind of water you drink, but it's, it is a type of water that's in these comets. And because of that, the chemicals that burn off give off a green glow. And that's actually ironically when you, uh, it, well, like for example, I have this little kiddo in the parish after mass that always asks me these awesome questions that little kiddos ask like, Father, why are things green? <laughs> you know, why is the sky blue? You know, he's kind of at that fun. Uh, and so for me, I said, well, from a scientific standpoint, grass that's green reflects the color green because of you know it reflects you know the it absorbs certain chemicals and rejects others and that rejection of certain elements creates color and he's like huh <laughs> and uh but it, it's a similar type of thing that there's chemical signatures that burn off that give up the give the comets you know, these colors and appearances. So, yeah. I, I drive my wife crazy every once in a while, actually quite often. Uh, she's very much into color, uh, mm -hmm. whether it be painting the, the inside of the house or, or dressing or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And uh, number one, she'll show me this, this thing that comes from the paint company. You know, it, it opens up and there's about 15 little squares that, that are all rectangular and they're all white except minor variations. You know, this one's called snow white. This one's called frost white. Mm -hmm. uh, this one's called fairy white. This one's called dirty white. And they all look the same to me. And yeah. so I always say to her, well, I like the first one. 
It drives you nuts. But it did occur to me, and again, this is a philosophical question that I can't answer, and probably maybe no one can. Just because I look at a wall, and the color that I see is, in my brain, green, what guarantee is there that another person is seeing exactly the same color, but in their mind is green? Because then you get into the whole science of colorblindness, of rare tribes that see the world in black and white, um, animals that can... It's not necessarily that, like for snakes, for example, it's not that they can see infrared, but they have special glands that help them utilize infrared spectrum of light at night to hunt prey and that kind of stuff. It's really, it's when you get into this, it's both fascinating and just in my opinion, it it always makes me wonder at the beauty of God's creation, you know, in terms of, you know, we think we know a lot. We don't know much of anything. And when you really get into this and that's why for some people it's intimidating, it's scary. It's kind of, you know, to jump in and realize that more of what we don't know versus what we do know. But I just find this stuff fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about time, there's two things that come to mind. First, St. Augustine. And St. Augustine, in one of his writings on time, ironically hit on something that modern science now is exploring. Is time real? And Augustine... St. Augustine posed in his writings the idea, perhaps we don't understand time properly. And maybe time isn't so much of, you know, this passing of seconds and that, but maybe it's observing change. And for him, it wasn't just material change, like, you know, babies growing up, us getting old, that kind of stuff. But it was moral change too, spiritual change, being drawn closer to Christ. And that our sense of time isn't so much that there's like this huge universal clock that runs everything. But we live in a world that was created to change. And as we observe those changes and see the patterns of changes, we've created this sense of time, which is ironically very consistent with the most recent astrophysics that speculates that our sense of time, because when you get to black holes and how time warps and time isn't a consistent time acts differently as we know it now in different situations in the galaxy as others, um, that perhaps we're wrong about our sense of time. And what it is, is science would say that you're, you're measuring decay, you know, or you're, you're measuring order, things coming together and things decaying in a strictly physical sense. But really that's not too far off from St. Augustine. And then after that too, it reminded me, Father George Coyne, rest his soul, he was, uh, he's passed away for a while now, but he was director of Vatican Observatory for a while. You know, when you talk about the universe being 13.7, 13.8 billion years old, he had this fascinating presentation once on how do you conceive of that similar to your 50,000 year comet loop? And he said, well, the easiest way to do it is this. For humans, we have to reduce things into something we can't understand. So let's say that we put 13.8 billion years in a calendar year. Well, if we do that, dinosaurs emerge right around Christmas. The human person emerges eh, maybe a couple days before New Year's Eve. 
Jesus Christ emerges about three minutes before midnight on January 31st. Now, on the surface, you might think of that and the whole insignificance argument might kick in. But then Father Coyne flipped the narrative and he said, and how beautiful it is that as we stand here three minutes away from when Christ was with us, that not from a faith standpoint, but from, from, a, from a scientific natural sense, we can definitively say the universe is trying to understand itself after all this time through us, through the human person, that the universe is trying to reflect on itself through the human person. And that's not a faith statement. That's something that any scientist could agree with and then bring in Christ, you know, then bring in our faith of, and how beautiful it is that God is inspiring us and God has met us in what can in material senses be seen as very insignificant. But when we understand it, Christ wants you, me, your listeners on the show, all of us to participate in reflecting on the universe after all this time. To me, that always strengthens my hope. That always strengthens my faith. It leads me to think that oftentimes people feel like, oh, if the universe is so big and so old and it's expanding, how can we think that we're significant? Well, one, the Bible never says that size matters when it comes to significance. That's true, yeah. If anything, you know, he argues just the opposite. There isn't a sparrow that falls that isn't, you know, aware of, of... And so for me, the larger the universe becomes and the smaller I become, that's precisely where God wants me to be. Take the lowest place, says Christ. Don't seek the seats of honor and power and prestige. Don't look to be significant, but instead embrace the lowest place. And I can't think of anything lower than being a human on an earth and a universe that's 13, eight point billion years old and 13, 8.8 billion years of space time and distance and is getting bigger and I'm getting smaller. Great. That's right where God wants me. There's been a couple of stories in the news that uh, I thought was interesting that, that again uh, reminded me of this idea of concepts of time. There's a, a nine-year-old girl in Maryland who um, was an amateur uh, fossil hunter. And apparently in her area, uh, there's a beach with some shallow water at certain times, and you can go there, and fossils have been found. Well, she kept asking her dad at Christmas time for an insulated pair of waders so she could go out into this bay. And he finally relented and bought her these things for Christmas, and she goes out there like the day after Christmas, and she mucks around in the sand and the water, and she pulls out a uh, gigantic tooth from a shark called a megalodon that -hmm. lived three and a half million years ago. And this thing is about Mm -hmm. the size of a scone or a slice of deep dish pizza, right? I mean, this is big. She's holding this thing in her hand. It's bigger than her hand is. That's just one of its teeth, right? (laughs) But can you imagine her trying to, uh, well, it's three and a half million years old and you're nine You know, yeah. yeah. When I was living in Texas, the last year we were there, we rented a house up in the so-called Texas Hill Country, which by its nature is up high and uh, kind of like the bluffs here near the Mississippi. And 
There was a little bit of ground on the front that uh, had, for some reason, had eroded and, and fallen. And I was just looking at it, trying to figure out what had happened to it. And I looked down there, and here are seashells. Mm-hmm. And these seashells, I mean, I can't even imagine how old they are. One of them was a little round thing, like a clamshell. It had a fossilized worm in it that both mm-hmm. had died at the same time, apparently. But this, you know, we're pretty high. If you imagine some of the higher bluffs, like Grandad Bluff or something like that in, in mm-hmm. La Crosse, imagine that was the bottom of an ocean. Yeah. <laughs> and this stuff had been high in the dry Texas hills, the bottom of an ocean, and those were seashells that were on the bottom. There's times like that where you just you try to understand how you can conceive of time. And we are basically we only think in terms of almost day to day. You know, um, I watched the the ball drop at, at Times Square live on TV. Or, and for me, growing up in the East Coast, that was midnight. Well, now I'm watching it, and mm-hmm. it's eleven. And so, you know, yeah. uh, and with this big kerfluffle over the time changes going on, daylight savings and mm-hmm. this, that, and the other, we kind of muck about with time as it suits us, it seems like. I, I was wondering, and I suspect you might know this, in the time of Jesus and the disciples, A, how did they keep track of time? And B, how did they keep track of months, holy dates, stuff like that? What did they do? Yeah, and that's a great question because if you read any modern astronomy textbook, you will most likely encounter one of the biggest errors of printing that is in any education system. And it'll usually have something to the effect of the first astronomies, astronomers were farmers, you know, to, in terms of this is when you plant, this is when you harvest, all that kind of stuff, which is absolutely wrong. (laughs) The first astronomers in any culture were priests. And whatever a priest figure was for different cultures, whether it was Egypt or, um, you know, that type of a thing. And precisely because of the measuring, not just of time in terms of a passing of time, but establishing feasts. And that's where we get the two senses of our time. In the Greek, we call them kairos and chronos. Um, Kairos being this sacred time, this timelessness of feast and celebration, and uh, Kronos, which is more of just the normal passing of time. And as we re-enter ordinary time out of Christmas season, this is a per- this is a, a perfect example of it. We've established a set time for the celebration of the Christmas season, and we have just completed that that would be a sense of kairos, of special time, a time of celebration, a time of... uh, But now in ordinary time, from the Latin word ordo, which really literally means the ordinary passing of things, we're now entering into the ordinary living of our faith, the daily life of our faith. So how do we take this gift that we literally received at Christmas of Jesus Christ and the season that heightened our sensitivity towards the special time to celebrate. And now how do we allow as we go about our work and our play and our ministry and our families, how do we go about and allow those sacred times to be lived out? That was really the beginning of it. And 
you know, there was a lot of things like lunar um, events. And so therefore, at the time of Jesus, they would have measured months on a lunar calendar and based on lunar cycles. And and there would be feasts um, that would be like uh, grain offerings and that type of stuff. So there would definitely be seasonal feasts, which by extension, the farmers picked up on from the priests. It wasn't the farmers that were informing the priests when all this stuff was going, should be happening. That gave us our sense and our rhythm of time, not in terms of a setting your watch per se, but more of having this the early church fathers called it the sense of the cosmic liturgy that everything gives glory to god and so if we pay attention to the rhythms of the natural world uh, we get a sense of when we should celebrate and when do we work when do we rest when do we uh, get about with the daily work of things what is you know i was just reacquainting myself of the idea of of a sabbath year in the old testament of when you know, farmers would take a whole year and let the fields rest. Um, and on how there was this sense of following, you know, those rhythms from the standpoint of, of uh, not just seeing time as I got to get to here by five, but as we observe change, again, going back to St. Augustine, that change changes us. And so time in that sense really has a ministerial function. It's not it's not just uh, uh, something to measure, but it's something to embrace and counter to transform our lives. Um, which is why a good way to look at why do Catholics say we have to go to Mass on Sunday? It's not just because we're a bunch of legalistic meanies that like to take away people's fun. We need sacred time. We need sacred rest. That's, it's not a command from the standpoint of a brick falling on our head. It's a command from the standpoint of we're wired for Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath is for man. The Sabbath is not for God. <laughs> um, we need the Sabbath. You know, the, the other thing that occurs to me, and I hadn't really thought about this, is that in our current world, um, you know, we have atomic clocks. Even people have quartz movements mm -hmm. on their watches, which are pretty darn consistent. There was nothing like that on the ground back then. But nope. the celestial mechanics, the movement of the stars, etc., were pretty much the same every year at a certain time. And so consequently, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that Stonehenge, people think, may have been something of, of calculating when the star could be seen here. Yep. I was down in Cancun, and I went up to uh, that Chichen Itza, which is this the restored area that showed what the Mayans were doing. They had an observatory there, too. And they're beginning mm -hmm. to realize that they were actually fairly accurate, fairly consistent. So they could say, hey, when that star is right between these two pillars... This is the same time as it was last year, and, yep. and it was kind similar, of similar. Yeah. Similar research has been done on the Egyptian on the Egyptian pyramids too. Mm -hmm. That they're find that uh, with certain pyramids, they're oddly offset in a very precise way. But they're finding that when you kind of being that we can use you know science now to in programs to literally wind the night stars back and you know. A, you know, look at the drift of the earth and where would have stars actually been in the night sky like 4,000 years ago, given the wobble of our, our Earth's rotation, that kind of stuff. They're starting to find that a lot of these pyramids 
were oriented to certain stars or constellations in a similar way to Stonehenge, that it's it may not be some type of odd mystic religious type of thing, but there might be something more of just a, a connection of a measurement of time in some way that was meaningful for their culture enough to build these things. Yeah, their version of a quartz watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And now we wear one on our wrist and uh, we are... We are ruled by them pretty much <laughs> but yeah. this idea of you know uh, remember the sabbath and keep it holy is really a, a wonderful thing we have tried to uh, incorporate that more recently um that our sundays you know in addition to things like mass uh, that we we try not to do a lot of busy stuff if we can yeah. and it, it really does set up the uh, set you up for uh the rest of the week. There's a whole bunch of stuff in, in Jewish culture. I think they called them mitzvahs. These are ideas. And, and some of them you think are, are silly. Like one of them is feed the animals first. Well, mm-hmm. we have four-legged animals in our house. And we said, you know, we should be feeding these animals first just to see what happens. Uh, you get up in the morning, you quickly make a cup of coffee. Then you feed the animals and then after they have eaten, you make your breakfast, and they don't bother you. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, it's very practical. It's, it's, it's not only good for them because they get fed, but it also gets them off your back. They're not going to go, hey, can I have some of what you're eating because you mm-hmm. haven't fed me yet. So sometimes you a have... Theme the, huh. yeah, a theme that I like to, to preach on you know, about Sabbath is that do we see it as a day of of uh, recreation, of time and a half or double time at work, or do we see it as recreation? You know, the, the play on the, the recreation word. Do we see that the Sabbath is, has a certain recreative function to, again, to, to bring us back to who we're supposed to be, to reestablish us with our, our, the core of who we are and our creator, and, and in a real way going all the way back to the garden in Genesis to to in our hearts reestablish what went wrong at the beginning so that we can be a new creation every week. And from that standpoint, who wouldn't want to be a new creation every week? And also, do you need to know about a plane crash in Nepal? Right. As it happens every minute, every day. Mm -hmm. Not that that isn't important. Um, It's, you know, it's tragic and everything. But the point is that sometimes you need to... uh, put that aside and, and think about things that are better for you. There was just a thing, I think it was on CNN these past couple of days saying, they're saying that uh, uh, people who just get out in nature and go for a walk um, can frequently do more benefits for them than they may end up decreasing some medications they're taking. I, in an odd way, I had a very, you know, as you know, I do work with the Vatican Observatory, but I also, through COVID, got into wildlife photography and one of the reasons being is when I got back from sabbatical, um, I came back into the, the throes of the shutdown. And I learned very quick about myself that if I didn't get outside and do something for me, I was going to go nuts. Yeah. I mean, I had to get, I needed to get out of the rectory and we couldn't really do anything. And so I started to take my camera and go for walks in the woods. And it's something now after the shutdown is done that's maintained for me. And I, I with my staff, we jokingly call it "Father needs his duck time." You know <laughs> that if that if uh, you know if uh, 
if I'm having a long day and I'm starting to get stressed, I know I need to grab my camera and to go out to different places. I like to go for a walk and just set, you know, feed the ducks and take some pictures of them and, um, you know, that type of thing. And it, it is, there is, and it makes sense when you think about it, everything that God makes is gift. Mm-hmm. And you're a gift, I'm a gift, all of us who are listening to the show is a gift. This world is a gift. And why wouldn't, in something that's a gift from God, that being attentive to a gift from God, somehow God can use that in a, a way to help us, to heal us, to give us a sense of well-being. And that really at the core is a healthy starting point naturally of what the sacraments are about. You know, through things like bread and wine and water and oil and that those type of things, just very basic things that we encounter on a daily basis somehow through them and those God can allow us to have encounters that we wouldn't be able to have otherwise um, without that relationship. There's a thing we've talked about frequently about um, the Mass, for example, and Chris Carsons, our our Director of Sacred Worship, has written a book explaining a lot of the symbolism of the Mass. And Mm -hmm. and the, the thing we've said in the past is you could have two guys or people who are going to a football game. I mean, one of them is from another country where they don't play football as we know it. And they're both sitting on the, the bleachers watching the football game. The person who is well into football knows everything about what they're doing, why they're doing it, you know, what, this, what the, the particular plan is they're going to execute. And the other person just sees a bunch of people running around chasing a ball. It's very similar going to Mass. If, if you were to get, mm-hmm. uh, for example, Chris Karsten's book, and it explains everything the priest does from raising up a chalice to, to you name it. Uh, you can yeah. go there and you can say, oh, look, this is where they're, ex- this is where they're, they're honoring this or doing that. And it makes it a whole different experience. Yep, it sure does. And, and you just put it. You just put a book on my reading list. I haven't read his book yet, so I'll check it out. He printed it several years ago, and I I had him on a while back talking about it. But he, you know, he has Chris is a, this guy who gets hit with all these questions um, uh, about uh, sacred worship and and things in the church. Uh, they get funneled to him, and he's written uh, quite a bit, not only articles but books on, on various aspects of the church. And uh, every once in a while, he'll get hit with something like during. Uh, uh, during Lent, one of them that I remember was that someone asked him if uh, if frogs' legs were fish. <laughs> yeah. you know, wow. is, is it okay to eat those? And, and then he had to say, well, you know, Friday is supposed to be penitential, and right. you have to decide whether eating a gourmet item, which I suppose frog legs are, um, is considered penitential. Uh, yeah. you know, so he's a very interesting fellow to talk to. Uh, he he break out the lobster and butter. Yeah, that's right. It's fish. Yeah, come on, I want some lobster. Come on, yeah, that really does the job. He uh, he also lives out in the country. He he taps his own maple syrup. He does all these things. So he's he's very aware of uh, so much in the church uh, symbolically and, and 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 the whole nature of it. And yet he's also living in a rural environment, which is kind of neat too. I'm, I'm sitting and, here right now. I was raised up through fifth grade anyway. I was living in a city next to Newark, New Jersey, and I could actually see the Empire State Building out my back window, and I had basically sidewalks. And we moved mm-hmm. to a more, uh, I would say, rural area, which was a good thing. But uh, I never dreamed that I would be living in an old 100-something-year-old farmhouse on about three acres 
surrounded by cornfields, which is about as alien an environment as I could possibly imagine. The other day, I put some, uh, we had a couple of cats that were outside that, you know, just passing through, but they got caught in the cold snap. And I put some food out there, and I happened to look out, and here was a rather gorgeous skunk. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful coat, double white stripes. And I didn't go pet it, believe me, I'm not that stupid. But... Uh, here was a skunk. I haven't seen a skunk for a long time. And I've reoriented my upstairs studio where I'm talking to you right now. I'm able to look out the window. And yes, they're box elders. They're not fancy trees, but they're trees. And we did mm-hmm. the same thing downstairs when we had a reorganization. There's a big window in our laundry room that we had put in. And we put a desk there with a chair so you could sit at the desk and look at nature outside as opposed to staring at mm-hmm. you know, a wall someplace. Uh, it's it's really good to do this kind of thing. And maybe uh, as the weather improves, uh, get some of those plastic chairs that you can buy over at, uh, you know, for $15 and that are pretty much weatherproof. Oh. Sit outside. Take them out mm-hmm. there. If they, if they get bird, you know what, on them, you wash them off. And um, if, you know, if the dust from the roads gets on them, you wash them off. That's what we're doing. And they're not, yeah. they're not expensive. But get outside. Yeah. Sit there. Listen to it. It's fun. I agree. Father, I understand you have, so, speaking of time, uh, you have things you have to do, things like mass and other things that we, we have to uh, deal with as well in real time. So uh, can you give us a couple of final comments before you head out? Sure. You know, just to kind of dovetail as you were talking with Chris about Chris Carstens and the things that he does where he lives. And there is something about it when we connect with God's creation, we begin to, again, in that whole Kairos Kronos sense of time enter into a sense of timelessness that three hours are gone where in the world did that go type of a thing and i think that for us within our world today we're becoming so obsessed with the false sense of time we're getting so obsessed with the false sense of time of just doing this that that getting to this meeting getting to that meeting that you know artificial intelligence stimulation through virtual reality all that kind of stuff that we're forgetting that no matter what time actually is, we're forgetting the most essential time. And that time is that time with the Lord, time with each other, the time when we're not obsessed about distractions, but instead completely immersed in God, in God's creation, in the mystical body of Christ with one another. And so in this, it's like, yeah, this comet's not going to be around for another 50,000 years, so we have to do something between now and then. So why don't we love the Lord? Why don't we love one another? And who knows, maybe the Lord will bless us with another beautiful comet before we're all called home to eternal glory. And maybe, God willing, if we all experience eternal glory, we'll see things that will make comets look very boring. <laughs> very good. Father James Krasinski, thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome, Jack. Stop on here.
Another time song, Jimmy Jones, 1960 time, and that was, by the way, a big hit in the States and a number one hit in the UK charts for three weeks in a row. Not bad for a young man born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1937. Back after this. Important cancellation, especially those who are listening on Saturday. The Culture of Life event in Eau Claire has been canceled. I don't know the exact reasons why, but I can imagine a couple of things. One could be the weather, people traveling to get here. Uh, this has been a rough week in terms of ice and things like that, and it hasn't cleared up in lots of different places. There could also have just been too many last-minute details on local participation in the March for Life to Washington, D.C. that simply got in the way. Another possibility, and I am simply speculating here, Valentina, uh, the young lady from Chalice of Mercy, who was going to be one of the main speakers at the event, may be very tied up with other things going on. This is kind of a not complicated story, but has some twists and turns. Valentina came from Ukraine as a young woman, and she returned to Ukraine periodically beginning a number of years ago to spread a pro-life message to the doctors in Ukraine. Also, along with spreading her pro-life message, she also was getting badly needed medical supplies to the doctors and the hospitals in Ukraine. And so she got to know the routes, the ports, the places where you could get trucks rented, all kinds of the logistics of getting things from point A to point B. She got very good at this, along with the help of some of her relatives in Ukraine. Well, along comes the invasion from Russia, and her mission suddenly expanded to not just helping out the hospitals, but to helping out everybody, getting all kinds of stuff over there. And because she knew the way and because she had the contacts, she has been trusted with literally millions of dollars of badly needed equipment. Just a few weeks ago, there was also a general collection over in Chippewa Falls to get everything from diapers to you name it over to Ukraine because everything was badly needed. You can find out more about what she's doing by simply going to the Dow and website, diolc.org, and you'll see a banner for Chalice of Mercy right along the top. And also, don't forget, you can check the calendar at diolc.org for other diocesan events and find out when this particular event will be rescheduled. Jack Sosha here with you on Connecting the Diocese. I had a little tiny piece of the Chambers Brothers doing Now the Time Has Come from the latter 60s. A lot of folks would assume that the Chambers Brothers were a pop group, did a lot of flower power music, were probably at Woodstock, things like that. And indeed, they were definitely doing much of what we just described. But I will tell you also that, as was the case with a lot of groups where you only hear the chart-topping hit that they produced, they also did other music as well. And on the original Now the Time Has Come album, there's another song. It's a gospel song called People Get Ready. There's a train coming. And this reflects some of their roots. Three of the singers were black. Their drummer was white. They have a long history and knowledge of gospel music. And this is a very popular song in the gospel community. You can find all kinds of different versions done by all kinds of different artists if you search around online and especially on YouTube. But I'm going to leave you with them. Nice words from the Chambers Brothers. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 